Grace and peace to you in Jesus' name, friends. Amen. We were making nice progress in Matthew's Gospel, weren't we? We were up to Matthew chapter 17 just last week, cruising along in the Transfiguration account, and all of a sudden, we're back in Matthew chapter 4, rewinding about two years in Jesus' life. I blame the moon. Let me explain that. Easter moves every year. Uh, it follows a moon-based chronology because that was how the ancient Jewish people calculated the date for Passover, and Easter follows Passover's date. Passover followed the moon, Easter follows the moon. But of course, the moon's cycles don't track perfectly onto our 12-month calendar. Full moons move around, Easter moves around. So the beginning of what we call the Lent season, uh, 40 days leading up to the celebration of Easter, also moves around. And Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness is always the first story from his life we read in Lent. Because Lent, this purple season of the church year, is the time when we think about the temptations we face each and every day during each and every year of our lives. As we consider Jesus' temptations this morning, we'll consider the ways in which we are also tempted. So this happens right after Jesus was baptized by his cousin John and God publicly announced Jesus' status as the Messiah, the promised Savior. God opened up heaven above Jesus. He sent the Holy Spirit down in the shape of a dove to rest on Jesus. And God proudly told the assembled crowd, This man is my son, and I love him. Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River, away from the towns and the settled areas of Israel. And right after he was baptized, our text tells us he went further out into the wilderness, into areas without any human settlements, full of shrubby, thorny thickets, growing in rocky, hard soil. It wasn't a good place to grow anything, so you found very few people out there. And out there, with no food, no shelter, no anything, Jesus met the devil and battled wills with him. Isn't it interesting to look at the differences between Jesus' encounter with Satan versus Adam and Eve's? We heard what that looked like in our first reading this morning. Adam and Eve met the devil in a garden, bursting with blessings from God. Jesus met the devil in a foodless wilderness. Jesus faced Satan alone. Adam and Eve were together. But there was one fundamental similarity. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he did so using God's word. He twisted it. He pretended to misunderstand God's command at first. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Then he outright denied the truth of what God said. You will not certainly die. Likewise, when Jesus meets him in the wilderness, Satan wants to twist what God has said. In each of Jesus' temptations, the devil takes something true which God has said and twists it. We'll consider each of the three and think about what Jesus' temptation means for you. The first temptation draws on what God said when Jesus was baptized. God opened up heaven and proclaimed, This is my son! Now Satan takes that word from God and uses it to test Jesus. So you're really God's son? Prove it, hungry man. What's the big deal? Jesus could have done it. He performs such miracles later, such as when he feeds the 5,000. And God performed similar miracles through his Old Testament prophets, such as when the widow who gave housing to the prophet Elijah was fed during a famine by jars of oil and flour that never ran out. 
God even miraculously provided food for the entire nation of Israel during their wilderness wandering, 40 years rather than 40 days. So here's Satan's argument. God has shown his love to his people all throughout their history by providing food for them in times of hunger. If you are really God's beloved son, Jesus, he would want to do the same thing for you. How does Satan try and put the same sort of thought into our hearts? Well, we're tempted in the same way when the devil puts such thoughts into our heart as this. If you're God's child, God wants to take care of you. And whatever you might do that brings you your daily sustenance then has his blessing. Put it another way. If you are fed and well, then you will know that you are God's child. God does indeed promise to care for us. And so clinging to that promise, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, give us this day our daily bread. But what Satan would have us do with this promise is throw a picnic blanket over our sin. If you are content and you have what you need, then you don't need to examine your life. Be as covetous and greedy, as ungracious and arrogant as you like. If you are fed, you must not be sinning. Clearly God is blessing you. Jesus answers this twisting of God's promises with a simple, clear teaching from the Bible, from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus shows us here that it is wrong to look to our full bellies or bank accounts for assurance of God's love. Nor should we look at growling stomachs and decline transactions as evidence of God's anger. So we look to God's word to find his commands and his promises. May times of abundance not cause us to become arrogant, and may times of hunger not cause us to despair. The devil then takes Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, up to the very top, and this time tests him directly with a passage from the Bible. He quotes from Psalm 91, and then urges Jesus, God says he'll protect you, so prove that you believe that. Show me. Now, isn't that a tricky one? Again, we do know that God promises to protect us, and the Bible verse Satan quotes here shows that God will even miraculously protect his children. God promises up to angelic intervention if it's what's needed to keep his children safe. But Satan leaves out some crucial words in his quotation. Psalm 91 is there in your pew Bibles if you'd like to go and look at it. And if you would, you would find in verse 11, from which Satan quotes the entire section reads, God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. It's that last phrase that you'll notice Satan leaves out here. Well, that doesn't change the meaning a whole lot, does it? It doesn't necessarily. That Satan is not quoting the Bible inaccurately here. But when he applies this passage in the way that he does, reinserting those words, in all your ways, puts the lie to his statement. What are all your ways? Some of you have heard me use the word vocation before. Our vocations are the roles we have in life. We all have many vocations. I am a, a father, a husband, 
a pastor, a citizen, a brother, a son. When the Bible describes our lives and the way we ought to live them, it frames such teaching in terms of vocation. We think of the Apostle Paul's letters. When he talks about how Christians ought to live life, he speaks to particular vocations. He tells husbands and wives how to live out their roles. Then he tells parents and children how to relate with one another. Then he talks to pastors and congregation members, all different vocations. When God in Psalm 91 promises to care for his children as you walk in all your ways, he is promising to care for and protect you as you live out your vocations. He will bless you, parent, as you care for your children. He will bless you, employee, as you carry out your work with diligence. He will bless you, young person, as you patiently learn from the example of those who have gone before you. He will bless you, older person, as you lovingly and humbly pass on your wisdom to those coming after. Where he does not promise to bless us, is when we step outside of our ways. He does not promise to bless you if you spend your time busying yourself in the lives of others. He does not promise to bless you if you spend your time grumbling and griping against the authorities he has placed over you. He does not promise to protect loudmouths with untamed tongues. He does not promise to protect loveless gossips. And he does not promise to protect Jesus if Jesus goes and throws himself off a building. Jesus knew that what Satan wanted him to do there was taking him far outside his role. He had not come to earth to use his life to test God's love for him. Jesus had come to earth to give his life for you. Jesus' primary vocation, besides being a son and a brother, a friend, a teacher, his vocation, first and foremost, was always Messiah, chosen servant, Lamb of God who would die to take away sin. His life was not his, that he could use it to test God in such a way. And so his reply to Satan is blunt. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's last shot, for now at least, because he would continue certainly to put stumbling blocks before Jesus during his life, but here he tries for one more big fall, or like Adam and Eve's. So he offers to give up. Jesus, I know you came to defeat me and to save the world. Let's get it out of the way. Let's take a shortcut. I'll give up. I'll surrender my claim over these sinners and over their fallen world. No cross needed, no suffering, the shame and humiliation that you know is coming. I've had a good run these last four years. Let's just end things now. One little thing I'm asking you to do, just bow down to me. Let's stop and think about this one. It's what Jesus came to do, right? The Apostle John says in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's what Jesus would be doing, right? Satan removed from power. Jesus ruling over all things, just as God intended, and three years early to boot. Away from me, Satan, Jesus says, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What does it mean to serve God? Serving God means to do what God has commanded in his word. 
Again, vocation explains to us, shows us what's missing in Satan's argument here. God has particular instructions for how people in various vocations ought to live and shortcutting our way to a desired result by sidestepping God's commands for our lives is no service to him. Jesus' vocation was Messiah. And God did not say the Messiah would serve him best by getting to the end as quickly as possible. God said the Messiah would serve him by suffering and dying on behalf of sinners. A Messiah who shortcutted that plan would have been no Messiah, no Savior at all. How does Satan tempt you to shortcut in your vocations? Does he tempt you as a parent to shortcut your way to having good kids with bluster and anger? Then remember that God commands fathers and mothers not to exasperate their children, not to lash out and fly off the handle, but instead to balance discipline with heart-rending love for them. Does he tempt you as a single person to shortcut your way to sexual happiness with pornography or one-night stands? Let his word strike that down. But people are not objects to be used for your gratification. Sex is a gift given by God to husbands and wives to strengthen and reaffirm their love for one another. As an employee, are you tempted to shortcut your work with surface-level preparation and attention to only what your boss will see? Because it is written, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What God has given you as a role in this life, find joy and satisfaction in it. It is meaningful. Friends, we're going to read this story again next year, when Lent begins. And I'm going to try not to preach the exact same thing, but when we get to that point, we're going to see not much has changed for us. So long as we are here on this planet, these will be the temptations we face to find God's approval in material blessings rather than in his word. To test God by stepping outside our vocations and sticking our noses where they don't belong, to shortcut our way to the ends we desire. Lord, have mercy on us sinners. In Adam, we all fell and we've all been stumbling ever since. But because of Jesus, you are not reckoned as a stumbler or a rebellious busybody from our Romans reading. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, perfect obedience to his Father's will, complete readiness to take up the cross waiting for him for you. He took all your shortcuts and complacency, all your presumption and malice onto his cross. He crushed the head of Satan just as God had promised. He died in your place. He rose because your victory has been won. So now, in this Lent season, and always, may we cling to him and to his word for comfort and for light on our paths. Amen.